Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Ever since President Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex in his 1961 farewell address, Americans have developed a complex of their own on the subject, worried about the unsavory implications of the cooperation between the gigantic military establishment and the equally gigantic corporations that serve it. What that wave-top discussion often misses, however, is the reality that the military and the market have long been interwoven in ways that both reflect and shape the broader relationship between the military and society. Recent scholarship has taken such a broader approach to try to understand that relationship, and a recent work, The Military and the Market, edited by Jennifer Middlestadt and Mark Wilson, offers a brilliant window onto this new scholarship and onto questions that should interest not only historians and strategists, but all citizens who wish to be informed about the relationship between the free market and one of the largest government procurement uh, sources in world history. <laughs> so we have with us here today the two editors of the book and one of the contributors to the book, Jennifer Middlestadt, Mark Wilson, and Kara dixon Vuick. Jennifer Middlestadt is a former Harold K. Johnson chair at the U.S. Army War College and is professor of history at Rutgers University. She studies the 20th century United States with interests in the state, political economy, social and political movements, the military, and foreign affairs. Mark Wilson is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He is the author of the books The Business of Civil War and Destructive Creation, American Business and the Winning of World War II. For 2022 to 2024, he holds an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which is supporting his current work on a history of the U.S. military-industrial complex since 1950. And finally, Kara Dixon Vuick is the Lance Corporal Benjamin W. Schmidt Professor of War, Conflict, and Society in 20th Century America at Texas Christian University, and the author of The Girls Next Door, Bringing the Home Front to the Front Lines. She is also the author of Officer, Nurse, Woman, the Army Nurse Corps in the Vietnam War, the editor of the Rutledge Handbook on Gender, War, and the U.S. Military, and co-editor of Managing Sex in the U.S. Military. She is co-editor of the University of Nebraska Press's book series, Studies in War, Society, and the Military, and is writing a new book called Drafting Women. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. Thank you so much for having us. It's a delight to have you all here. So Jennifer, I want to start with you. What inspired this work, and how did, how did you select the authors and topics involved? Well, Mark and I uh, had both been working on the history of the U.S. military and its relationship with markets, Mark mostly in weapons, materiel, and, and real estate, and, and me mostly in, in services. And we had started sharing our ideas with each other about some exciting findings that we were making uh, that corresponded with each other. 
But really what happened was that I came to the War College in 2017, 2018 as the Harold K. Johnson chair. And when it came time to teach an elective, uh, Dr. Mark Duckenfield and Dr. Jackie Witt encouraged me to pursue a class about the historical evolution of the relationship between the military and the market. And I jumped into it with what I knew already um, and from my research and writing with Mark. But boy, once I started digging and putting together the syllabus, I realized the scope of the really exciting material that was out there um, that I could teach, that that scope had just exploded in recent years. There was new scholarly work on everything from the military and labor markets to soldiers as entrepreneurs, to the importance of consumer goods, to global technology and supply chains. So I circled back to Mark uh, after I was done. I said, hey, did you realize they were all these amazing scholars who were blowing open the doors on military and market relationships? And he said, of course, yes, he knew about a bunch of it. So I asked him, do you want to get together and try to gather this all into one book? And so I think, you know, Mark pulled a lot from the people and colleagues and work he knew in business history and the history of capitalism side. And, and I pulled more maybe from history of state, society, and the military side. And um, as you can see, uh, we've got a great collection of scholars in the book as a result, not least uh, Kara Buick. Right. Well, and, and one of the things that I noticed is looking at it is you do, if, if people think military industrial complex, they, or they think the size of the U.S. military uh, over the past 50, 60 years, right? They think, well, of course there's you know, economic implications, but the, the book goes further back than that. Right, uh, you know, and 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 reaches very broadly, and that's one of the things I'm, I'm always curious about when you when you get a collection like this that is so rich, is was there an overall theme that you knew you were going to sort of that was going to link the topics and the authors that you selected, or is there an overall theme? If 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 I had to ask you for a a sentence or two, telling me what the book is about, Mark, I'm going to throw this to you first, and then over to Jennifer. Um, uh, you know, how would you summarize this book for? Uh, for an interested audience. Well, thanks, Ron. And um, it's, it's been such a pleasure working with Jennifer and the, all the authors on this book. Um, you know, for edited volumes like this, where you have nine distinct chapters, I think it can be hard to discern any kind of coherent theme, right? Because people are, are pursuing all sorts of different paths. Um, but I think at least half the book or, or more does more or less fit into a kind of uh, story that, that emerges. And um, it's, it's a long-run story of the U.S. military's, I think, growing dependence and really growing approval and fascination with markets and with business uh, solutions and private sector solutions to its needs. Um, and that's certainly the case in the first section of the book where Jennifer and I try to sketch out a long run story um, uh, of that happening. And then uh, we have a piece on the more recent developments in the military industrial complex by political scientist Dan Worlds, where he talks a lot about the rise of service contractors, not just for the Pentagon, but also for the um, the VA and other other parts of government, um, and there's also there are other chapters on housing, on high tech, on the construction of of Cold War bases abroad, 
Uh, we've got great authors, um, Patrick Chung, Gretchen Hefner, um, A.J. Murphy. And I think all of those pieces, and, and I'll let Kara speak for herself, but I think all those pieces fit into this story of what Jennifer and I talk about as kind of a rise and fall of a big military or a big, capacious, multi-competent military that does a lot of its own work in, in all sorts of different fields. And so I think as a whole, the volume kind of traces this rise and fall you know, over the course of, a, of more than a century. Right. Well, and, and Jennifer, to, to toss this back to you, but also to frame it a little bit, the, uh, the American public has an odd relationship uh, with uh, with government spending, right? You know, people will denounce socialism, but they will embrace a large military budget, right? And everybody knows that an organization that provides uh, food, clothing, shelter, uh, strict regulations, healthcare to its members can't possibly be socialist. Um, but uh, the uh, what is the relationship between the United States military and the free market? Well, that is a big question. That is Ron. a big question. I apologize. Right? <laughs> and, Read the book, uh, you could say. <laughs> no, but but it, it it does require me to like say two things. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things I think is really exciting uh, about the book is that we kind of follow where the scholarship has gone to say that the military is more than just this big monolith, and the market is more than just like corporations and traditional defense contractors. I mean. I think probably a lot of what most people think when they think of the military and the market is kind of weapons and material contracting, maybe service contracting. So one of the things that the book wants to do is kind of blow open our understandings and see that the military actually operates in dozens and dozens of different ways and different capacities um, and is quite a heterogeneous and complicated institution. But the same is true for markets. You know, markets really aren't synonymous just with corporations or with finance. You know, when we're looking at markets, we, you know, might be looking at investment markets, might be looking at labor markets, production, consumption. There's a lot going on. And so I think just although it's a typical historian thing to do, <laughs> insisting on the complexity and showing yes. lots of different facets of it is really one of the main um, contributions of the mm -hmm. book. I think also we kind of want to blow out of the water this idea that people have these kind of like simple functionalist relationships that they assume exist between the military and the market. Like, well, the military operates on command and control purely. And, you know, the mark, the free market operates with all these other, you know, sort of scientific rules of, of capitalism. And so the military can just operate as kind of this monopsony or monopoly, like with excessive force in markets. Or conversely, they might think actually that the military is just a tool of corporations and sort of exerts no authority over what it's doing. It's sort of told to do and run for profit making purposes. And in fact, of course, like the reality, once you bring in so many different types of markets and so many different facets of the military is quite different. It's very hard to predict without carefully looking, as our authors do in each one of these chapters at, at the specific historical case, what the relationship between the military and the market might be. Those things shift pretty dramatically over time. Right. Well, and, and Kara, this I'm going to bring you in is your chapter talks about the military's relationship to a particular form of entrepreneurship. And that is especially about about sex workers. Um, uh, but the idea of how does the military 
relate to trans let's say transactional behavior that um, that it can't necessarily control but it would like to channel um, and I, I, I'm curious to know about how your chapter in this book fits in with your larger scholarship but also what does the way the military has tried to regulate sex work show us about how the military interacts with the market yeah no that's a great question um, I mean I'm gonna echo Jennifer and just say it's complicated it's complicated uh, that's, that's <laughs> of fair. course yeah um, but but I mean, for me, as a historian of gender in the U.S. military, primarily, I came to this topic from that angle. Mm -hmm. And so it was really great for me to work with Jennifer and Mark because I was able to see something that I was seeing through my, you know, my own lenses and my own background and perspectives. And then to work with them and they're seeing it from the economy and, and they're seeing it through this market lens. And I was like, oh, yeah, actually, <laughs> That is what's happening here. But it is one of those topics that I don't think many people would consider when thinking of the military and the market, A, because it's about sex work. And so we don't want to think about that in the first place. But also it's one of those more, um, it operates in many levels that it's in some cases and in some places, it's a legitimate market that's regulated by military officials. And in other ways, it's more diffuse and it's more, um, you know, it's operating on a black market or it's it just occurs in all kinds of ways that are so nuanced and interconnected. And to me, really shows kind of what Mark was just saying about the military depending on private sector solutions. And this is a classic example of that and that the military is relying on sex work to to deal with morale, to deal with public health, to deal with matters of gender, to deal with matters of diplomacy. Right. And you I think most people would not think, you know, that sex work is a way that the military deals with diplomatic relations and relations with local populations, but it's been all of those things. And so it's a way that um, these, these markets become, or these two entities become dependent upon each other. Um, you know, obviously the military is dependent on sex workers to provide these services, but it also creates dependence for the sex workers on the U.S. military presence for their own income, and so it's a right. it's a kind of back and forth relationship. Yeah, and 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 can lead then to dis distortions in the local communities where large, especially large pop up installations develop during conflict. Well, and related to that, and this Mark, I want to bring you in here on this as well. Is you know, Kara and Jennifer and you have used the you know it's complex, right? Of course, here at here at Carlisle, we'd also just say, well, it depends, right? That's a good answer to every to every question. But um, the idea that when we're talking about the market, that um, markets are different, whether we're talking about the domestic United States economic environment or the various places, Oconus, that the um, where either bases are, and whether those bases are in. Uh, whether we're talking about bases that are in relatively sort of peaceful rear areas versus um, bases that are within a conflict zone. And what do we see as differences in the way the military responds to market pressures um, at home and abroad and in peacetime and in wartime? Do we, are there patterns that we can discern? Yeah, here again, you know, Ron, I think the, um, I'd, I'd return to the the kind of earlier overview of the book in that, you know, as historians, we're really interested in change or continuity over time. And I think, you know, part of the story of the book is one of where there is continuity, of course, in the military's use of private entities, both kind of overseas 
and and kind of um, and U.S. based to manage war fighting abroad, mm-hmm. right? And that's been true forever. Um, but what I think is is worth thinking about um, is the extent to which there's been, you know, more reliance on contractors and subcontractors to do the work of war in theaters abroad um, in recent years than there ever, ever has before. Um, and I think your listeners are familiar with log cap contracts and um, some of the big logistics services providers abroad. But I think that, you know, that's where there kind of has been an interesting and important shift. And I guess I'd, I'd, I'd interject here, um, uh, we may be able to talk more about this later, but you know, I think for your audience, and I think it's in the spirit of the War College's mission, um, you know, I think part of the point of the book is to urge military leaders to kind of be a little bit more maybe reflective and critical when it comes to their thinking about the way they go about what they do. And mm-hmm. this would be true for people in acquisition or logistics or just leaders in general, you know, as Kara's chapter suggests, um, thinking about morale and, and managing personnel, um, you know, and, and Jennifer and I certainly wanted, you know, deliberately to, to ask military leaders to, to be a little bit more reflective about their relationships to markets and their assumptions about what's necessary, what's natural, um, and what's desirable when it comes to um, balancing public and private capacities and 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 work, right? I think that issue of balancing, right? Because that's a political, intensely controversial political question, right? We talk about markets, you know, when you start getting into issues of of free markets and government spending, um, and also any discussion about large purchases will also raise uh, directly or indirectly questions of corruption. Uh, you know, I think about the, the ongoing sort of fat Leonard scandal with the Navy for, you know, to just, just to name some, just to pull something out of, out of thin air, which is apparently where fat Leonard has disappeared into. Um, Jennifer, I, I was thinking about, are there particular inflection points that we should be aware of in the history of the relationship between the military and the market, right? Mark mentioned that we've moved towards a contractor model, right? The idea that in the second world war, that the truck drivers and the cooks wore uniforms and now they may not, for example, right? So that the push for privatization of certain services, how should we understand the, the periodization of changes? Are there particular inflection points that you would want people to be aware of in this development? Well, that's a great question. And I was actually just thinking about that when you asked the previous question about kind of differences between uh, military market relationships that are sort of within the United States and those that are uh, taking place uh, in the far-flung places that the U.S. military really since World War II Mm -hmm. mostly has Mm -hmm. found itself. And so We'd be remiss if we didn't think about the importance of the growth of the U.S. military, the growth of the U.S. as a power and its projection of its power overseas that occurs just before, during, and after World War II, when mm-hmm. the U.S. kind of arrives on the world stage as the largest military and political power in the world. And that just transforms military and market relationships remarkably uh, at home, what you see, and Mark documents this is the creation of all these in-house functions from production uh, to services that the U.S. military is doing at an unprecedented rate by itself or managing it 
by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of the least reliance maybe that you might see in some ways, uh, I guess, in a ratio uh, relationship on the private sector that it ever had. So the World War II, I think, is an enormous inflection point in the growth of a public military. But what's really interesting to see is what happens afterward. And here, mm -hmm. I think, is where politics comes into the story, but maybe not in the way we've been thinking about it. There's a concerted movement in the United States among um, corporate leaders, uh, business leaders, uh, and their allies in Congress to start to confront this big military, not because they object to the military itself, they object to the military providing its own weapons, material, and services. And what they say is, it's time to put this back into the private sector. And right. so a number of the different chapters then in the book kind of, uh, I would say, chart the different signal moments in the deconstruction of the public military and the contracting that out into the private sector. The big public military stays around for quite a long time. In the 50s, during the Cold War, the large standing army, I think, militates toward keeping a lot of things in-house. But Mark shows that slowly over time, the military is pressured to offload a number of these things. What puts a hitch in that, I think, is the advent of the all-volunteer force, the all-recruited force. What that means is a new necessity to create in-house military service programs. Those service programs are largely in the area of serving personnel and families, housing, medical care, child care, family services, things of that nature. Those actually grow in-house again. It's, we see over another mm -hmm. rise in in-house military public um, production. But that too, I think, um, with the neoliberal 1990s and the drawdown, and also with the revolution in military affairs, all that sort of becomes a target for contracting out as well. So that right. we see the fall of this big military uh, and greater reliance on the private sector over the course of the late 20th century and early 21st century. And we have Mark and I documenting that, Dan Wurls's, um Agent Murphy's piece documenting that. Um, so we've got a collection there, I think, that speak to this, these uh, important inflection points that right. you asked about. Well, and, and this gets to the issue of when we we say, right, the new military history uh, or, or our new understanding of military history, which talks about the military and society, but in a way that neither the military nor society are uh, complete black boxes, right? They are, they interact with each other. And Kara, this is where I wanted to, to bring you in as an example of somebody who works on a lot of things related to the, the new military history, right? And how we, we think of different ways to, to think about the role of the military is how should we understand, right? How is it possible for a system that is built around hierarchy and command um, to uh, interact with a with a market mechanisms that emphasize individual initiative, let's say, and emphasize freedom. Right. This is part of a larger relationship of how does a how does a society of individuals organize freely uh, an all volunteer military? Um, which changes more when the military and the market or the military and society collide with each other, the military or the society with which the military engages? Yeah, um, that's a big question. Uh, I mean, I'm, if you think specifically about sex work, mm -hmm. I think in that example, you know, you're not dealing with big corporations, you're dealing with entrepreneurs, right. um, you know, in the, 
you might be dealing with a brothel owner, but that even that you're not, this isn't a matter of the military versus corporations. These are people, these are individual people. And so in that example, in my mind, the military, uh, you know, historians never say always, but almost always holds the power and right. is going to force the, the change or is going to be able to hold more weight Though there's always an exception, and the exception I'm thinking of is in Honolulu in World War II, when the sex workers in Honolulu go on strike. You know, I love giving this. Did they really? In, yes. <laughs> You've just See, proven the I wanted point to be, here. I wanted to be the appropriate. The, the, I'm standing right. here for the entire audience here. What? Right. It's in Beth Bailey and David Barber's um, book, um, The First Strange Place, and it's a chapter called Hotel Street Sex. And I love to give it to students because they react the same way. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't mm -hmm. believe we're talking about sex work when we're talking about military history. And they went on strike and they won. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is that is the exception. But it, I think it also speaks to the question you just asked about peacetime and wartime pressures mm -hmm. in that during wartime, it's a supply and demand kind of thing. When there's more pressure created by the war to meet soldiers' demands, you know, the military is going to do more things with regard to prostitution, sex work than it might in peacetime. Um, and that in turn gives these women more power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, you know, they are individuals. And I think a key part of this equation too is, is region and geography in the sense that all of this kind of work happens far, far away from the American public's eye, mm -hmm. right? They might know about it, but they don't know about it. <laughs> they don't want to admit they know well, about that's true, it. Right? Right? Yeah. Now we do, but in right. World War II, we could, you know, sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, and so again, they're individuals, not corporations. And so that's going to bring in all of the social, you know, back to the war in society. These are questions about not just sex work, but this is, you know, very directly related to notions of race and class and and all sorts of things. Who who is an appropriate appropriate sex worker in this sense is never a white American woman, right? It's someone else, and so that that exacerbates the power um, differential that we started with. I think. Very interesting, Jennifer. Go ahead, please. You look, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I actually taught that article when I taught the class at the War College, uh -huh. I, um, uh, Hotel Street uh, and Sex Workers. And what was really interesting was that, um, that the students in some ways were shocked at first that we were reading it, and then they weren't surprised at all. And I think that that mm. speaks to one of the insights that Kara's uh, chapter in the book and some of the other chapters in the book bring to us, which is that uh, when we just stop and reflect for a moment, um, as, as people who are familiar with, with the military and military operations, we see that it's not an, at all unexpected that the military would, in the course of having to pursue its missions, come into contact with a wide variety of people, institutions, organizations, in a wide variety of contexts, and that each one of those might generate, in different times and different places, outcomes that aren't entirely expected as well as ones that are expected. Right. And so I think, you know, Kara's chapter is just genius in showing the kind of shifting ways in which the military negotiates um, sex work in order to keep its own troops and morale happy and in order to not antagonize local populations 
um, it's really a balancing act that changes uh, in different places and in different times. But so too, I think, do some of our other authors show us some of the same things. I'm thinking of Patrick Chung's article um, about the development of silicon chip technologies that come out of the U.S. occupation in Korea. Mm-hmm. And the kind of unexpected consequences of that occupation are producing a culture of tinkering in uh, in leftover military items among Koreans, uh, funding of Korean education that emphasizes science and technology, the creation of military-funded PhD programs in the United States at big state universities that bring over foreign Korean students, and then those Korean students working in U.S. chip technology companies that are first doing military applications, then going into consumer application, and then these Korean scientists and and entrepreneurs taking that back to Korea, Mm -hmm. starting, you know, global Korean-based corporations like Samsung, (laughs) and actually taking over the, the, the chip market. So there's a story where the U.S. military goes from exerting tremendous influence on people and markets in Korea. So then sort of having this uh, unexpected move where the exposure and control over Korean education and markets produces a Korean expertise uh, and access to markets and uh, a kind of global economic domination in that field that the U.S. hardly could have expected, predicted, or maybe even wanted. Maybe even so, wanted. Yeah, so it's, a, so it's really interesting to ask those questions about you know, in, in these relationships, can we say, is there one predominant uh, institution winning out? It, um, I hate to say it again, but it's complicated. It's complicated. It's, it's, interesting well, to, it's interesting to see how those stories pan out in each of the chapters. Absolutely. Well, and, and you know, we're just about out of time, but I want to bring Mark in here on this uh, as, as we get some, some final reflections, right? That if we, you know, uh, Jennifer mentioned the idea that we went, the, the big military then declined, then there was a return slightly to big military. Now we're, we're, we're in an era where the emphasis is on the military uh, hiving off various activities to the market or to market forces. Um, you know, historians, you know, they never like to say always, they rarely like to say never, um, they hate to predict the future. So, Mark, I'm going to ask you, right, you know, what do you think the future is going to be like with uh, the relationship between the military and the market? Or at least what do you think scholars and uh, should be working on as they look at the future of this relationship? Well, I think, you know, that's a key question for your audience, you know, for, for military leaders. Um, are we at some kind of new crossroads today um, with regard to military market relations or not? Um, will the trends toward outsourcing and privatization that have occurred over the last generation or two, will those continue? In the epilogue of the book and the conclusion, Jennifer and I suggest that you know the, the COVID crisis um, and the rise of um, interest in pursuing a rivalry with China both uh, seem to have led to some new reflections about those questions. Um, there's a lot more interest in onshoring of, of supply chains and capacities um, and other kind of moves that might suggest that military leaders and others might be a little bit more wary of the, the full-blown outsourcing that have occurred in the past. Um, but we also suggest in the end that we're pretty convinced that the way that people are talking in Washington today 
suggest they're still more or less um, committed to a sensibility um, that's uh, making war fighting kind of more aligned with capitalism than it has been uh, for most of American history. Interesting. Well, so the relationship between the military and the markets, right? They're they're never going to uh, they're never going to be completely separated from each other. They will continue to interact in complicated, unpredictable uh, ways, uh, and hopefully, they will continue to interest historians and social scientists. I am afraid we are out of time for today, but for the audience, right? The book is indeed the military and the market, edited by Jennifer Middlestadt and Mark Wilson from the University of Pennsylvania Press. I encourage you, if you are interested in this topic, to seek it out. But today, thank you so much for helping us, for introducing us to the work and helping us to understand what you've been working on. Thank you, Jennifer Middlestadt. Thank you, Mark Wilson. Thank you, Kara Dixon-Vuick. Um, it's been a pleasure having you here on A Better Peace. Thank you, Ron. Thank and you. Thanks. You bet. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please uh, send us your comments. Let us know what you think about this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. Please uh, uh, con consider subscribing to A Better Peace. And of course, if you've listened this far, I have to ask you why you haven't already subscribed to A Better Peace. But after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that's how more people can find out about us. We're always interested in broadening this community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation may be over, we will be back again to talk about more things of interest to the national security world. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.